And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Good morning to all of you. So, was that not rich? Just hearing the word of God just read by many different voices, various ages, various, you know, both genders being represented, and uh, just hearing all the things that have been written, some of them thousands of years ago, some of them just a couple thousand years ago, but yet the timeless truth uh, spoken. I, I just, my heart's rich. And, uh, and then, of course, getting to hear some of what was read first service, some of what was second, and, uh, and being able to hear the, just the, the unity of some of the things the Holy Spirit is doing in his body. And so uh, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LAFC. I want to welcome you uh, here as we are in the midst of a series. We, we just began it a couple weeks ago, a series out of the book of Ephesians. And the the journey to choosing Ephesians was that when you study it, it talks about unity, but unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, unity of the church, and unity of purpose. And in light of a culture right now uh, that is pretty divided, uh, we felt like the Word of God and the way it speaks to what the Holy Spirit does in the church, this is a good place to be right now. And so... Uh, we're looking to uh, see the church, not just LEFC, but the, the big C church, uh, operate in one heart, one mind, one spirit, uh, because we're under one Lord, one mission. And, uh, and so it's a pleasure to open the Word of God with you. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and we'll be in Ephesians 1 this morning. And, uh, and I acknowledged last week that in the book of Ephesians, especially uh, in chapter 1, that there are two or three verses in there that each verse could be a series of teaching on its own. And uh, it, there's, there's a lot of theology that is formed out of chapter one alone. And quite frankly, because of Ephesians chapter one, it might be the reason why there are more uh, denominations uh, than probably originally guessed uh, upon in the, in the early church. Uh, because... The interpretation of these things has created uh, movements uh, of, of various churches. And so um, we are taking it as recognizing that there is tension in the text, not tension in the sense of conflict be between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, uh, but conflict and tension in our understanding of what happens in this text. And so we go there letting the text speak for itself and try to gain as much understanding as we can. Now, a couple weeks ago, we began in Ephesians chapter 1 with the first six verses. And some key verse, uh, terms that are in there is that, that we were called uh, or adopted or chosen by God before the creation of the world. So chosen by God to become part of his family before 
the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, there was no time. It always was. The eternal God, always existent, was who uh, established any kind of presence prior to the creation of the world. When the creation of the world happened, time began. And so we can say this with confidence, that God never not knew, all right? God never not knew who his children were going to be. And when that realization on the face of the earth by us human beings of knowing when we become a child of God, that might have been our revelation, but God always knew that moment. And God always knew those were going to be a part of his kingdom for all of eternity. And therefore, it's beautiful to understanding and understand it in the light of the analogy he gives here, which he says, you are adopted into this family. So he chose you, adopted you with the fullness of love. But we looked at that this particular Greek term, because again, the earliest text we have is in the Greek, and, and, it, and it speaks to not just any adoption, but rather an adoption as an heir or as a firstborn child, uh, and in their tradition, firstborn son. And so when we are chosen by God and adopted into his family, it's not just to be number whatever of his adopted children, but you literally become firstborn heir. All of us. Nobody is in higher rank in his family. All of us get the opportunity to enjoy the fullness of blessings of all that God has in his eternal kingdom. And so with that, he says that those he's chosen, those he's adopted, are the redeemed ones. Uh, and they are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we looked at again. That term redeemed means being released. Uh, release from a consequence or release from a bondage. And so we who were chosen and, and, uh, uh, and included a part of this family, we were redeemed, we were released, we were paid for to get out of prison, if you will, and we become part of his family. And then he says the result of that is that he sees us, because we're fully redeemed, released from the consequences of the sins we've done, he sees us as holy and blameless. And that just gives me shivers every time I say it, that, that God chooses his children, his family, to be a part of his household, and he looks at us through his eyes as being holy and blameless. Even though you and I are fully aware of our heirs, uh, we can even point out the heirs in each other very well, but to say that in God's eyes we're holy and blameless, that only happens because of the work that Jesus Christ did upon the cross. Now, what's fascinating is in verse 10, again, we're getting closer to where we're going to read today, that it says that all these things, these mysteries that have been brought into today, all those things will come into full fruition when Jesus Christ returns. And when he returns, then the fullness of understanding will happen. In the beginning of verse 10, it says this phrase, to be put into effect or a plan that is happening until Christ returns, that entire phrase is a single Greek term. So if you're reading it in the original language, you would see a single term, and that term is oikonomia. Does that sound familiar to any of you here? Not because of, again, you wouldn't know it from anything like the yogurt, but the fact that oikonomia comes from the same Greek term root, 
oikos, which we know and understand because we've taught it here. That's the term that means household. But in the time and culture of Jesus' day, they would use that term as the term for their sphere of influence. Uh, those they do life with. Those that they would be able to have influence uh, with and over. So they, because at that time, Anybody that you had influence with would come through your house. They weren't so separated in their homes. They literally, their house became a place of relationship, both family and friends. And so what we can understand is that when the oikos exists in the scripture, that it's talking about when you go and do ministry or you go and do disciple making or you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing the gospel with people in your oikos. Well, in verse 10 here, oikonomia is basically saying that until Jesus Christ returns, God is building a household. How's that? So we're in the season because Christ hasn't returned yet. So until he returns, God is building a household. Now, in the last 100 years, I am so glad that when many were proclaiming and prophesying that Jesus was going to return soon in the early 1940s when the World War II is just exploding and Nazism is, is in full force in Europe, people were saying, Jesus has got to be coming soon. Can we not agree right now that we are grateful and glad that Jesus Christ did not come in 1945? Because very few of us in this room would have then have had the opportunity to bend the knee and submit to the leadership and the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and the good news he offers us. And we're also thankful that he didn't come during the Jesus movement. Now, a, a true revival was going on at that time, but many were saying, this is the, the Lord's coming now and soon. And, and that's why you get the songs, you know, don't Be Left Behind by Larry Norman. You know the song, some of you? It's like, you know, rumors of wars, all this thing, and then all of a sudden the church is gone and you've been left behind. I, I'm not going to sing it for you. But there was, there was a firm belief that Jesus was coming then. And how many of you are glad that Jesus didn't come in 1972? Because for some of us, we did not know Jesus yet. And so... Then there was another movement in 1988 that, that was saying, there are 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988, so you better get ready. And people were like truly believing the time of Christ's return is coming. How many of you would say, I'm so glad Jesus didn't come in 1988? If you came to Christ afterwards, you would be toast right now. For me, 1988 was when my life really became in, uh, 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 changed and transformed by the work of Christ. So I might have gotten in by the skin of my teeth. But when Y2K happened, remember when Jesus was supposed to come in Y2K? Now, some of you might have to explain to those who were born around 2000 uh, or a little later, but there was a firm belief that the world was going to fall apart at the stroke of midnight because all the computers weren't gonna crash and this was God's way of creating calamity and the Lord would return. Now, how many of you are glad Jesus didn't come in the year 2000? Boy, you are an unresponsive. The first group was like, man, yeah, I'm glad Jesus didn't come. Is there life here? Okay, I'm just making sure you didn't fall asleep on me, all right? So 
then we get to this stage and we're wondering like with all that's happened in the year 2020 and 2021, are these things the precursors of Christ's coming? What we know is that when Peter made this comment, he said, you know, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some think he is. It is God that wishes that none should perish. So he is not slow in keeping his promise. So for every day, God waits to send his son back to redeem his church and collect his church is another day for people to come to Jesus. Amen? All right. So having said that, we are in the season of oikonomia where God is building a household. He's adopting more firstborns into the church. And we know from verse 12 that the first of those who believed, it was to the praise of his glory. So this brings glory to God when he grows and builds his church here on this earth. So let's begin by reading in verse 7 just so we can make sure we keep the context as we study primarily today verses 13 and 14. So beginning in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which to, he purposed then in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. In Christ, or in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were then marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So again, we've talked about how verse 3, verse 4, verse 7, verse 12, verse 11 could each have a series of messages that we could speak and spend much time in. Verses 13 and 14 are no slack compared to that. In fact, there is much truth uh, in this that, again, identifies and creates different movements of churches based on their interpretation of verses 13 and 14. So let's take a, a very deep dive into these two verses. And we must begin with verse 12, where it says that, that in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So let me stop there and ask you rhetorically, who were the first? Who were the first to put their hope in Christ? Now, this is being written by Paul, an apostle. But it's important to, to really ask ourselves, who were the first to put themselves into the place of a saving hope in Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question is the Jews. They were the first. They were the first ones to believe. The 12 disciples were all Jewish. Jesus himself of Jewish descent. The 72 that followed Jesus were also 
likely mostly of Jewish descent. We get the sense that they were all Jewish because of the 12 that were pulled from, without, from out from within them. And then there was the 500. Now it's possible that, that you get into Gentiles at that point, but again, primarily the first to hope were the Jews. It was in Jerusalem that the gospel first birthed itself and caught faith. Now, why is that important to ask this question in that moment? It's because of what verse 13 says. It says, after that, after those who are first to put their hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you, so in addition, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So there is an inclusion of and you, and the and you is the church of Ephesus in this case, which was primarily Gentile. And so what you have here is Paul speaking to a primarily a Gentile church and saying that yes, there were the first to hope in Jesus Christ, but you too, you too were included in this gospel message when by faith you received it, having heard this gospel message. So the Gentile church is included. Is this not consistent with what Jesus said? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Great commission. Go into all the world, making disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all I have taught you. So you have the commission. The, the mission of the church is to go into all the world, speaking and teaching about Jesus Christ, and then ultimately baptizing them in that name. So this is not meant to be a Jewish exclusive message. He is including all people groups. So literally, all people groups of the world are included in this family. So when he says that he has chosen a people, a, a people that are going to be his adopted heirs, that he's going to see as holy and blameless, that are redeemed because of the blood of Christ, those people he is speaking of are Jew, Greek, Gentile, from the fullest ends of the earth, male and female. And it's not also by whatever status you are in society because it says slave or free. So in this text, all people are being given the opportunity to be chosen by God and included into his family. So when we talk about firstborns, we are not speaking of male or female. We are not speaking of a person of a particular color or ethnicity. We are speaking of all those people who have a heart, who have a mind, who have eyes, who have ears, who have hands and who have feet, who are human beings made in the likeness of God are included in this family. And so with that, we as a church are committed to advancing the gospel to all people, regardless of where they come from, where they live. If they are made in the image of God and all human beings are, we are going to bring the hope of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So we are committed to that end. And so Paul is stating here that this choosing of this family that God is doing, that's being done in love, and it's a redemption story being released from a slavehood and a slavery to our sins, that we're all being released and set free to become heirs of the kingdom of God, the highest of the family in God's 
household. And so we get encouraged by that, but you need to also see that, that how that comes about is in that next phrase. And you were also included in Christ when, now highlight this, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We know from Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the, the word of God. So faith cannot just be come out of nowhere. It comes from having heard truth from the word of God. And that gospel message is rooted there. I mean, think about what it says earlier in that Romans 10 passage. It says, for all those who believe, they will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal separation from God, eternal damnation, a place called hell that's horrific and is real. And God desires to save people from that place. And so he did all the work to create that saving. And it says, for all those who believe, they will be saved. Now, this belief is not just belief that it exists. Because quite frankly, the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons believe that he came down and took on human skin. The demons believe that he indeed lived a sinless life. They tried really hard to break that. The devil himself took that on as a personal mission, failed. So then he dies a sinless death on the cross, then raises from the dead on, on the third day, therefore forever paying the penalty for all those who hear this story, believe and entrust themselves. The demons believe all of this. They know this story and they would say, yes, all of that is true then why is it the demons are demons and not angels? It's because there's something about, different about the belief that they have and the belief of those angels that stayed with God and his leadership. It's called entrustment. There is, you can believe something is true, but until you entrust yourself to it, then there you're just simply operating from an observational belief, not an experiential belief that says, I've entrusted myself to it. So the demons did not entrust themselves to the leadership of God. Instead, they chose to follow the deceiver, Satan himself. So when we hear from Romans 10, that it says, for all those who believe, it's talking about a belief that is a saving kind of belief. And then it goes on to say, but how can they believe unless they, they have hear. They've got to hear it. And then how can they hear unless they are told? So there is a hearing and a speaking that is part of the salvific journey of each person. We have to hear it. We have to understand it. God does all his work inside of us because we, we studied just a couple weeks ago that God initiates the desire to want him and God is the one that helps us understand what this salvation message is about. So when we hear the word of God, God is doing his work because those are his words we've just heard and it's his spirit that is doing the work. And then when we come to that place where we believe, it becomes a message of our salvation. So verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then when you believed, then something else happens. It says, you were then marked in him with a seal. You were marked with him a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. 
Who, then, is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption, the releasing of all those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory? So after we see that the saving faith, it begins with the hearing of the gospel and following that belief of the gospel, then we are marked as a child of God. We are marked as God's child or possession by his Holy Spirit. Now what's fascinating is that when you understand how society worked at the time this was spoken, they clearly understood the connection between being marked or sealed as to what that would mean. In their time and age, a sealing or a mark was an authenticator of, yes, this is the real deal, or it was used as this person has authority based on the seal that is given them. And so it was a thing of ownership. So seals were used to say this belongs to someone. And the seal was also given to the firstborn child to say they have authority above all. So when it says that you, when you believed, when you were included in this gospel message, you heard the gospel message and you received it and you believed it and you entrusted yourself in it, God then says, you're mine. You're mine. And he seals you with that, with the Holy Spirit upon you. And you are now his. And we're going to learn as we study through the book of Ephesians. When you get to Ephesians chapter 6, it describes something that is very fascinating. You see, you and I, we deal with the physical realm every day. But there is a spiritual realm that is going on. And that fight is ongoing whether you acknowledge it or not. You can bury your head in the sand and say none of that exists. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's happening. But in the spiritual realm, the Holy Spirit's mark of your life is seen by both the angels and the demons. They see when they come near you. That's one of God's children. It either creates liberty with the angels who are following after God or it creates boundary for those who are in defiance of God. And then they realize that the rules change as soon as they see the Holy Spirit upon someone. Thank God. Thank God that the mark of the Holy Spirit is upon us when we give ourselves over to him. Because that protects us, all the rights that are afforded as being one of his children are given to us, and it therefore it enables us to stand with freedom and not become enslaved once again. These things might be a mystery to many of us, but it is a beautiful thing that God says, you're mine. He says in other scripture that, that when somebody is in my hand, nobody else can take them out of my hand. We're in his hand. And when we are given that firstborn status, then, then there is a, a privilege that comes. I, I can appreciate in my, our day and age, the old, there are very few things that we see seals upon that, that makes a difference. But when I travel to other countries and I carry my passport, which has the seal and symbol of the United States of America, that affords me all the rights, privileges, and protections as a citizen of that country. I am thankful for that. There is a privilege that comes with that. And it, it provides protection that when, even when I go to other places, when they see that passport, they know that I come with the full protections of my country. 
It's part of it. And that seal authenticates it. Now, there are a lot of attempts at forgery. So the government regularly tries to make sure that forgeries are nearly impossible. But nonetheless, those that are real carry the seal. So too is the case with those of us who are in Christ. We are God's possession. It can't be removed from us. In fact, it says it's a deposit guaranteeing. It is a constant aspect of who we are in Christ. It cannot be removed. I use one seal. I don't have a ring that, that the old royal princes of old would have that when, when they wanted to authenticate a, a letter they wrote and drip wax on the seal of that scroll and then use their ring to imprint to say this is authenticated, it comes from me and people can have confidence it came from me. You know, I get all that age, but the only thing that I use that is somewhat similar is that when I graduated from college, I was given the gift of a emblosser or a imprint for my library. You'll see it on the screen now. That when I am given a book or I buy a book, the first thing I do is I take my little imprinter and I put it on the page and I press down and that book now is solidified as mine. Mine. Not yours, mine. <laughs> because when I loan books, they tend to not come back. And then when they finally open it, those who borrowed it from me, they can see it's not theirs, it's mine. <laughs> That's the importance of such a thing, is that from the library of Tony Hunt, that book exists. And so now, not every book do I emboss because sometimes I'm just wanting to have it for a season, um, but, but if I wanna keep it, it is, it is something I do. And quite frankly, you could try to iron that out of that page and it won't work. It's there for good. The only way to get rid of it is to destroy the page, to burn it. Then it would have its end. The only way for the mark of Christ on this person is when my death happens and I enter into eternal life and I take on a new being. That is the hope that we look forward to because our souls get to go with the heavenly father and the mark of the Holy Spirit is that deposit which then becomes the guarantee of our inheritance. So this is beautiful and it's important to understand the beauty of what this does when God places the seal and mark of his Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit becomes then this, again, a deposit, but it, in the Greek, it probably better be said as down payment. It's the down payment. It's a down payment guaranteeing that we indeed are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven, that we're firstborns of God's family. Again, every tribe, every nation, we come before him equal before him. And he says, you are my child. And the Holy Spirit testifies that we are his children. Beautiful. I mean, look at it again. It just read it with, out loud here. It says, who is a deposit? The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your and my inheritance until the redemption or the release of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Beautiful. Now, I need to say something here because some of you are reading in the ESV. A few weeks ago, I, I teach from the NIV in here, and I called out that the NIV didn't have the greatest work of translating one of the verses we read a couple weeks ago. 
Well, I need to call out ESV in this moment, and, the, and I'm calling it out because it's an actual mistake, not just a translative uh, indifference. Um, in the ESV, it's going to say at the end of this, instead of what the NIV says, until the redemption of those who are God's possession, in the ESV, it says to acquire the possession, which is then referring to there's an acquiring of the inheritance, that actually is incorrect. In the original Greek, the word acquire is not found. There is no verb there. It is a possessive genitive term referring to one of ownership, one of, of being owned. The NIV, NASB, King James Version, and Calvin in his commentaries, if you need that affirmation, says that this is about the possession of God referring to his church. So when you realize that, again, seals and symbols were used to say, this belongs to this individual, and you can tell which individual it is by the seal or symbol. When those in the spiritual realm, the demons and the angels, see you, they see the mark of the Holy Spirit, and they immediately know you're God's possession. You are God's child. Now, for those of us that are in the physical realm, can we identify those who have the mark of the Holy Spirit? Sure. But should we be the ones articulating? Hmm. Okay, so we have about 500 here in the room right now. Okay, you are saved. You're not. Don't see the Spirit in you. It's kind of questionable. So I'll, I'll let that stand for, I'll give you another day. And I accidentally pointed at my in-laws. <laughs> I just realized as I'm looking at, at there's my mother and father-in-law. I am not meaning that whatsoever. They're the saved ones in the room. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, we would do a lousy job of identifying those who are truly the children of God. We would, because we're not able to see all elements of a person's life. Now, it is true. We know from Jesus when he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount that those with the Holy Spirit, truly in them and on them, they will behave with the fruit of the Spirit. You will see the fruit come out of their lives. And so, yes, it is true. You can see evidence of those who are God's children, but you are not called to say, believer, unbeliever. We are not given that opportunity. But we can, as brothers and sisters, ask each other, why is it that I'm not seeing some of the fruit of the Spirit that we've spoke on this past summer Peace, love, joy, goodness, kindness, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why are we not seeing that, the evidence in our lives? And we should hold each other accountable because that means we are operating under the leadership of our flesh, not the leadership of the Spirit. So, as God's possession, that leads me to this. If the Spirit is the mark that says those are who are His, and the Spirit is also the mark that says that they are children of God, it is also true that that Holy Spirit is more than just an external mark in the physical or in the spiritual. He is our constant guide. You see, the Spirit is not just a mark that all of a sudden is tattooed upon you saying you are God's. No, he becomes a living and active part of God's presence in your life. You see, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said at the end of John 15 and into John chapter 16, he says, I am leaving so that the Spirit can come. 
The Spirit will come and he will become an advocate for you and for the Father as an intermediator between the two, as one that will then also guide you into all truth. Some of the translations will say, will counsel you into all truth. So literally, when you believe, as according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that when you heard the message of truth and you believed, you were marked in him with the Holy Spirit, and then that Holy Spirit from that point on becomes the active force of God in your life to guide you into all truth, as it says in John chapter 16. Guiding us into all truth. So that means that every day of our lives, when we're trying to navigate all the strange things that are happening in the world, the Lord provides his Holy Spirit. The Lord provides his Holy Spirit to counsel us and to guide us into all truth. And he reminds us of the words that were written in the scriptures that he himself guided the writers to write by his, in the spirit. And so that same spirit then guides us each and every day. So for that, that's why Jesus left. So that he could become the advocate at the right hand of God while the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, takes possession of each of us and speaks into our lives each day so that we become more and more like him. Over the past week, I know many of you have struggled from different points of view of, of society of where do we get to make decisions? Where does the government get to make decisions? Who's responsible for those decisions? What things should be read and not read? And the list goes on. It's created quite the anxiety in our society and it's drawn lines. There is truth to be found in all of this. But as I shared a couple weeks ago, while we might be armed with truth, we are to never use that truth by the leadership of our own flesh. We are not to also be motivated by being the corrector of society. Our motive is actually to win people to Jesus. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. You are the salt of the earth, that when the salt has left its good flavor, then you're just cast out, you're no longer good for his work. So as we go out in society, those who are marked in the Holy Spirit of Christ, there is to be a light and a salt that emulates from our life that would cause people to want to lean into the gospel. It is also true that there are things in society that are lacking truth, and the society needs to hear it. But we forget that they're not going to listen if the power behind your words is merely your flesh. If we speak emptied of the flesh, we accomplish nothing, or emptied of the spirit, we accomplish nothing. And over the past few weeks, in the name of Jesus, or those who bear the name of Jesus, haven't always spoken by the spirit. Not when you can see that it's at a provoking nature, condescending nature, demeaning nature. Even if I agreed with some of the perspectives it doesn't give me the license to cut down, tear down, and divide society. When all of these arguments come to their full fruition and the battles are either won or lost, in the end of the day, 
where will the gospel of Christ and the church stand in regards to society? Will they see us as the opportunity and place for where the answer can be found? Or will they see us as a place where we behave just like the worst of the world? God gave us the Holy Spirit to be a guide to everything, not just parts of things. So if we are marked in the presence of the Holy Spirit, then we should be following his lead. Let him be the leader. Let him guide how we speak. Let him guide what we say. Let him guide whether or not we should speak into this. Jesus, there were many times when Jesus withheld, even when truth was clearly able to be said in a moment. And there were times when Jesus knew this isn't the time to speak into it. We can discover those things when we choose to pray first, seek the leadership of the Spirit, and ask for his permission to go forward. Again, for those who are the children of God, we're given that Spirit. For those that are afforded that firstborn status, we're given blessings. And just like firstborns here on this earth, sometimes they take advantage of those firstborn status and they make a mockery of their inheritance. We've been praying for a harvest for our community and our region. We've been praying for our other churches. We've been praying for our community's leaders. We've been praying for their hearts. We've been praying for their salvation. And so therefore, if that is how we're praying, then it's going to affect how we speak into their lives. And that will greatly change if the Spirit is the one authorizing it. Let's pray. So Father God, my heart has been heavy over this because I realize that the church is armed with truth. We are armed with with things that can absolutely help society. But Lord, Jesus knew how to speak where the the impact had a ripple effect for even 2,000 years later. So let us not speak from a brash spirit, a provoking spirit, but let us speak as authorized by your Holy Spirit, where the fruit of our words drip with the Spirit's fruit. And God, we want to see our kingdom, the kingdom of God, prevail in this area. And we want to see it not just through the church of LAFC, but through the churches around us that we will uphold the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as true light and salt needed for a society. So Lord, do your work in us. We commit to you as leader of our life, the words of God being the authority of our life and the spirit of God being the instructor for how to apply that word. So I pray this in dedication to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In this church, we teach unashamedly the word of God. Let's not confuse who the true Trinity is. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's not pretend or try to co-opt that by saying it's the Father, Son, and Holy Word. That's an offense to all three persons of the Trinity. So let's hold to the truths that we do know to be so, that there is a God who sent his Son, Jesus, to die on a cross, to redeem a people unto himself, and then gave his Holy Spirit so that those people were not abandoned, but knew how to live life and live life to the full. Would you stand, please, as we sing a declaration to that end?
So a brother read this passage as part of our uh, time of scripture here, and it's where I had planned to close. That if we desire to see something change in our society, it doesn't begin with correcting them out there. It begins with looking here. It says this, if my people, who are called by his name, all my firstborns, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. It begins with us who have by faith heard the word of God, believed, trusted in him, and then realized as him being our maker, our Lord, and our father, and as being an inheritor of his, we humble ourselves before him and we pray, almighty God, would you work in me? And then would you work in our community? We want to see our land healed. We want to see the gospel of Christ change lives. If you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room. We'd be glad to pray with you. But the beautiful thing is that there are many firstborns here in this room that would be glad to pray with you as well. Take advantage of that opportunity. God desires to speak into your heart. In Jesus' name I say that. Amen. You're dismissed.